Hi, and welcome to Sleep Tight Relax. A short message for grown-ups. If you get value from our stories, please consider subscribing to Sleep Tight Premium. With Sleep Tight Premium, you receive four stories per week, plus super long sleep sounds, guided meditations, music for sleep, and more. Visit sleeptightpremium.com to subscribe. A link can also be found in our show notes. Thank you. Hi there. This is Clark, and welcome to Sleep Tide Relax. Sounds, music, and stories for calming busy minds. This episode's sleep story is a boy's recollection of school in Japan in the 1800s. As many of us have headed back to school, college, and university, I thought it was an interesting contrast to the school life we experience today. It also bears some similarities to the life my own children had when attending elementary school a number of years ago. Now, let's relax. Before we begin, have you found your quiet spot, your place to relax, or are you ready for bed? Let's make sure you have a suitable environment for comfort. Now would be a good time to position your pillows or your other little comforts to make sure that everything feels as it should. If you are ready for sleep, you might try to ensure that your room is as dark, quiet and cool as possible. Now. Take a deep breath in through your nose and release the breath through your mouth. Take another breath. Fill your body starting from the bottom of your abdomen and allow your breathing to relax you as you exhale fully. Breathe in gently, and as you breathe out, let the air carry the tension out of your body. Breathe in, and breathe out. Take your time. 
See the air inside your body after you inhale, filling your body gently. Notice how the space inside your lungs becomes smaller after you exhale and the air leaves your body. Feel your stomach gently rise and fall with each breath. Notice now how your body feels. As you continue to breathe deeply, see how calm and gentle your breathing is and how relaxed your body feels. Continue this, always focusing on your breath as long as you feel necessary. I hope you have a deep and restful sleep. A Japanese Boy The earliest recollection I have of my school life is my entrance with a number of playmates into a private gentleman's school. At that time, the common school system, which now exists in Japan, had not been adopted. Some gentlemen of the town kept private schools in which exercises consisted mainly of penmanship. For arithmetic, we had to go somewhere else. In Imabari, there lived a keen-eyed little man who was wonderfully quick at figures. And to him, we repaired for instruction in mathematics. We worked not with slate and pencil, but with a rectangular wooden frame set of beads, resembling an abacus. It is called Soroban. You find it in every store in Japan. I like it better than slate and pencil for the fundamental operations of arithmetic but cannot use it in higher mathematics. I remember seeing a young man of my acquaintance perform algebraic calculations, of which we had some knowledge before the influx of Western learning, with a number of little black and white blocks called the mathematical blocks. A knowledge of penmanship and arithmetic is all that is required of a man of business. But a learned man is expected 
to read Chinese. My schoolmaster was a kind of priest, not of Buddhism nor of Shintoism, but one of those who go by the name of Yamabushi. He let his hair grow instead of shaving it off as the Buddhist priest does, wore high clogs and the peculiar robe of his religion. He simply followed his father in the vocation. He was a young man of high promise and manifested more ardor in letters than at the prayers for the sick or for the prosperity of the people. His house was on the fourth block of the main street, set back a little from the street and with an open yard between the tall, elaborate gate and the mansion. The front of the residence was taken up by the shrine. The school was kept in the back part of the house. When we first entered the school, we were known as the newcomers among the older boys. And though bullying was altogether absent, we had no ordeal to go through as the freshmen have in American colleges. The pupils' equipment in one of these old-fashioned schools consisted of a low table, a cushion to squat upon, and a chest for the following articles. White paper, copy books, and a small box containing a stone ink vessel, a cake of ink, an earthen water bottle, and brushes. A little water is poured in the hollow of the stone vessel. The ink rubbed on it for a while, and when the water becomes sufficiently black, the brush is dipped in it. Then, looking at model characters written down for us in a separate book by the teacher, we try to trace the same on our copy books paying close attention to every particular. The first that we must learn is our alphabet of 48 letters. I recall vividly the trials in making the alphabetical figures. I tried time and again, but to fail. The sorrow gathered thickly in my mind, and soon the grief overpowered all my strenuous efforts not to weep. Then the master would send one of the older boys to help me. He stands behind me while I sit, grasps my hand which holds the brush, and to my heart's content traces figures like the master's in perfection. The copybook is made of the tenacious, soft Japanese paper, many sheets of which are bound together. Each of the 48 characters is studied separately. It is written large so that the learner may see where a bold stroke is required and where a mild touch 
After the alphabet, we learn to write Chinese characters. The copybooks become black after a while, being dried and used again. Therefore, they need not be perfectly white at first. Usually, they are made of the sheets of an old ledger. I used to see on the pages of the copybooks made for me by my father old debts and credits, and the names of the parties concerned in them, dating back to my grandfather's time. They disappeared collectively under my wild dash and sweep of ink. What an act of generosity to wipe out the remembrance of former money complications. After a day's work, all the copybooks are literally drenched with the black fluid. They are moist and heavy. They must be dried. Every patch of sunshine about the school is improved. Every breezy corner turned to account. At home, the kitchen is spread with them at night so as to have them dry by the morning. Copy books that have done long service are coated with a smooth, shining incrustation of carbon. Shining if good ink has been used, but dull if ink is cheap. The quality of ink cake is not only judged by its luster, but also by its hardness and odor. A good one is hard and pleasant, and the bad, soft and unpleasant. After we have practiced writing the letters for some time, we finally write them on white papers and present them to our teacher, who with red ink makes further necessary corrections. If the final copy is satisfactory, he sets us to work on the next portion. Every morning after breakfast, I gathered together dried copy books and went after or waited for some boys to come along. We strolled up the street toward the schoolmasters, calling on other boys as we went. The first task in school upon our arrival was to set the tables in order, get the things out of the chests, and go after some water for making the ink. It was no comfortable occupation cold winter mornings to get the water from the well in the windy open yard in the rear of the house and dip our hand and the drip bottle together and keep them in it until all the air escaped by bubbles and the bottle was full. A bottle, though I called it, the receptacle is a hollow, square, china vessel with two small holes on the flat surface, one in the center and the other in one of the corners. We sit in a house where there is practically no arrangement for heating, 
and where we are poorly protected from the gusts from without. The Japanese house is built opening widely into the external air. It has but a few segments of external walls around it. Therefore, one can select no breezier abode during the warm months. But in the dead of winter, the mere thought of it makes me shiver. Those immense open spaces could be closed, to be sure, at night with solid pine board sliding doors. But in the daytime, the question of light comes in. To meet this difficulty, our ingenious forefathers had contrived a framework of wood pasted with paper. You must know they had no idea of glass. We can scarcely call it a happy solution to the problem for the paper is soon punched through and lets in the biting wind. Too much active ventilation takes place, whistling through the holes, and then when a storm strikes us, the whole frail work shakes in the grooves wherein its two ends are fitted, like the chattering of the teeth. This sliding paper partition is called shoji and of late has been somewhat replaced by the more expensive glass windows. Since the introduction of glass, I have seen the shoji partially covered with it and partially with paper. The Japanese thinking it very convenient to see through the partition without being at the pains of pushing it aside or making a hole in the paper. Had paper been entirely discarded and glass alone been used, the Japanese house would have been much brighter and warmer. Such a building is a poor place to hold a school in. But the boys were used to it, and they behaved so, quarreling, weeping, laughing, shrieking, that there was little time left for them to feel the cold in their young, warm blood. When home from school, our faces and hands were as black as soot with ink. On my reaching home, my mother would take care of the copy books and send me straight to the kitchen to wash before I sat down to the table. The vessel corresponding to the basin is made of brass. We have not learned to use soap. Old folks believe that it would turn our black hair red like that of the foreigners. There is no convenience of faucet or pump each house has its own well in the backyard, even in the city. Hence, no waterworks, no gasworks, and no fuss about plumbing. The housewife must proceed to the well for water, rain or shine, and struggle back to the kitchen with a pail full of it every time she needs it. 
the kitchen itself is not often floored. The range and the sink stand directly on Mother Earth under a shed-like roof which has been darkened by smoke. The range has no chimney. Not coal, but wood is burned in it, and all the smoke escapes from the front opening or mouth and fills the entire kitchen, causing the dear black eyes of the amiable housewife to suffuse with tears. She has the small Japanese towel wrapped round her head to protect her hair from the soot of years that has accumulated everywhere and falls in gentle flakes, snow fashion, on things universally. She works her pair of lungs at the fire-blowing tube, a large bamboo two or three feet long, opened at one end for a mouthpiece and punched at the other for a narrow orifice. The imprisoned volumes of smoke in the kitchen must crowd out through a square aperture in the roof. If it be closed on a rainy day, they must escape through windows or crevices the best they may. The water, when brought in from the well, is emptied into a deep, heavy, earthen reservoir of reddish hue standing near the sink. With a wooden ladle, I would dip out the water into the brass basin and wash myself without soap in the most rapid manner possible, yearning eagerly for dinner. The towel is a piece of cotton dyed blue with designs left undyed or dyed black. I grumbled, I confess, when my mother sent me back for a more thorough washing. Oftentimes I was late and was obliged to eat a late dinner alone. But when all of our family sat down together, enough of life was manifested. At one end, my witty young brother provoked laughter in us with stuff and nonsense. Next to him sat my younger sister, quiet and good. I assumed my position between my sister and my father and mother, who sat together at the head of the row. I forgot to mention that my older brother, whose place must be next above me, had been ordered to keep peace in the region of my merry little brother. My sister-in-law took her stand opposite us, surrounded by a rice bucket, a cast iron cooking pot, a teapot, a basket of rice bowls, saucers, etc. She was the one who had to cook and serve dinner and wash dishes and take care of her babies. It is this that renders a young married woman's lot in life very hard in Japan, the principal weight of daily work devolving upon her. After all this, if parents-in-law are not pleased with her, 
she is in imminent danger of being turned off like a hired servant. However affectionate she may feel towards her husband, and the husband feels it is his duty to part with her, despite his deep attachment. Fortunately for my sister-in-law, my mother, who has four daughters living with their husband's relatives, made every household task as light and easy as she could for her, and expressed sympathy when needed, knowing that her own daughters were laboring in the like circumstances. We do not eat at one large dining table with chairs round it. We sit on our heels on the matted floor with a separate small table in front of each of us. I remember my table was in the form of a box, about a foot square, the lid of which I lifted and laid on the body of the box with the inner surface up. The inner surface was red, the outer surface and the sides of the box green. The convenience of this form of table is that you can store away your own rice bowl, vegetable dish, and chopstick case in the box. Some tables stand on two flat and broad legs. Others have drawers in their sides. We do not ring the bell in announcing dinner. In large families, they clap two oblong blocks of hard wood. Grace before meal was a thing unknown to us. My brother, however, had a strange habit of bowing to his chopsticks at the close of meals. He did it from simple, heartfelt gratitude and not for show. In his ignorance of him who provideth our daily bread, he concluded to return thanks to the tools of immediate usefulness. Chopsticks are of various materials, bamboo, mahogany, ivory, etc., and in different shapes, round, angular, slender at one end and stout at the other, etc. In a great public feast where there is no knowing the number present, or a religious fest where reverential cleanliness is formally assisted upon, fork-shaped splints of soft wood are distributed among the guests who rend them asunder into pairs of impromptu chopsticks. On the morning of New Year's Day, tradition requires us to use chopsticks prepared hastily of mulberry twigs in handling rice paste cakes called moji, which the people cook with various edibles and eat as a sort of religious ceremony. Rice is the staple food. Vegetables and fish are also consumed, yet no meat is eaten. Partridge and game, however, were sanctioned from early times as food, or rather as luxuries. 
to cook rice just right, not too soft, not too hard, is not an easy matter. It is considered an art every Japanese maiden of marriageable age must acquire. The rice is first washed in a wooden tub and then transferred to a deep iron cooking pot with some water. The point lies in the question, how much water is needed? Neither too much nor too little. There is a golden mean. If the rice is to be cooked, either the very least little bit soft or hard, the young servant wife, for really that's what she is, is blamed for it. The right amount of water is only ascertained by trial. No less puzzling is the degree of heat to be applied to the pot and the point at which to withdraw the fuel and leave the cooking to be completed without any further application of heat. These things I speak of not merely from observation, but from personal experience. When I was off at a boarding school, which I may have occasion to speak of, I experimented in boarding myself for a while. I learned there how to cook as at a young lady's seminary, as well as how to read and write. Hot boiled rice we always have at dinner. At supper and breakfast, we pour boiling tea over cold rice in the bowl and are content. Tea is boiling in the kitchen from morning till night. It is drunk with no sugar or milk. When no palatable dishes are to be had, we eat our rice with pickled plums and preserved radishes, turnips, eggplants, and cabbages. The preserves are not done up in glass jars. They are kept in a huge tub of salt and rice bran. During the summer months when vegetables are plenty and cheap, we buy a great quantity of them from a farmer of our acquaintance. He brings them on the back of a horse. The poor animal is usually loaded so heavily that only his head and tail are visible amidst the mountain of cabbage leaves. Days are spent in washing and scrubbing the roots and bulbs of the garden, many more in drying them in the sun. Housetops, weather-beaten walls, fences, and all available windy corners are utilized in hanging up the vegetables. When partly dried, they are packed in salt and rice bran and subjected to pressure in bamboo-hooped wooden tubs, commonly by laying old millstones on them. Being but partially dry, the vegetables deliver the remaining moisture to the powder in which they are packed. And in course of time, 
the whole contents become soaked in a yellowish, muddy, pungent liquid. The vegetables can be preserved in this way throughout the whole year. They are taken out from time to time, washed and sliced and relished with great satisfaction. They are something that is sure to be obtained in any house at any time. With cold rice and hot tea, they make up our simplest fare. When I was late from school, I made out my dinner with the rice and vegetables. Frequently, however, my provident mother set aside for me something nice. I believe we had no afternoon session in the old-fashioned school, and the boys had two or three pet games to play in leisure hours. One of them was played in this manner. Each one is provided with a number of pointed iron sticks, a few inches long. The leader pitches one of his sticks in soft soil. The second follows suit, aiming to root out his predecessors by the force of pitching in his own close to it. Then the third, the fourth, and all around the company. Another of the games was played with square chips of wood on which were painted heads of men and all sorts of fanciful figures. A triangle was drawn on hard level ground and at the distance from its base, a parallel line from which line the boys each in turn threw a common lot of the chips contributed by all into the inside of the triangle. A habit established itself among us of the players coming down to the ground on all fours immediately after the act of throwing. It was the consequence of bending too far forward in order to get in all the chips at the peril of neglecting the center of gravity. The chips that flew outside of the triangle were gathered by the next player and those in the inside allowed to be taken by the player should he be able to throw a chip from his hand and lay it on one of them one by one. If he failed at any moment, the next player gathered together all the remaining chips and played his turn. A modification of this game consists in throwing the chips against a wall and counting good those only that remain inside a straight line parallel with the foot of the wall and turning over to the next player those on the outside. The game is played by girls as well as by boys, although they rarely play together. We also used to play hide and seek, blind man's bluff, and other games 
that are familiar in this country. <laughs>